You may be seated. Uh, this is Reformation Sunday, and as is our custom, uh, we will depart from an exposition of Scripture to talk about the history of God's people, and on this Reformation Sunday, celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, who would be more fitting to talk about than Martin Luther himself. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, a familiar passage of Scripture, we have a list of great saints and what they accomplished by faith for God and for God's kingdom, how by faith they advanced the kingdom of God. And the saints in that list in Hebrews 11 are all drawn from the Old Covenant. It's men like Noah and Abraham and Samson and Isaiah who are members of this so-called Hall of Faith. But there's no reason why the Hall of Faith should end with the writing of the Scriptures and the passing of the apostles. Men and women continue to do great things for God's kingdom by faith. And in that enlarged Hall of Faith, certainly Martin Luther must have a very prominent place. There are few who have done more for the kingdom uh, over, let's say, the last 2,000 years than Martin Luther. And so today we tell his story and we explore his legacy. I want to read for us from Romans chapter 1, two verses that uh, initially tortured Martin Luther. Uh, as he says, he beat upon the Apostle Paul to seek to discover what he meant. But then as he came to understand what these verses mean, they became sweet and joyous to him. This is Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Here again, the Word of God. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. This is the Word of the Lord. Thank you, God. Let us pray. O oh God, today we honor not the man, Martin Luther, but we honor You for Your work in this man. He is only a man worthy of honor because of Your work in him and through him. Indeed, may we see through him to the Savior he embraced, to the Lord Jesus Christ. May we see in Martin Luther a man who faithfully points us to Jesus Christ, the God-man, our Savior who suffered and died for us. And so today we pray, Lord, show us the joy of Christ. Show us righteousness in Christ. Show us peace in Christ. This we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. In 1934, a black pastor from Atlanta, Georgia traveled to Berlin, Germany to attend an international Baptist conference. While in Germany, he took some historical tours and learned a great deal about the life and work of Martin Luther. And he was so amazed by Luther's story, by Luther's Gospel, his teaching, and also the way he lived his life, standing up to the powers that be to tyranny and oppression. This pastor from Atlanta, Georgia, decided to honor Luther the best way he could. He changed his name from Michael King to Martin Luther King. And a few years later, he also changed his son's name from Michael King Jr. to Martin Luther King Jr. And of course, we know Martin Luther King Jr. 
as the great champion of civil rights for all. But the two Martin Luthers really share more than a name. And indeed, you could say they're genuinely linked in other ways. Uh, indeed, you could say the theological vision of Martin Luther in the 16th century is what made possible the sociological vision of Martin Luther King Jr. in the 20th century. The spiritual freedom championed by Martin Luther led to the political freedom championed by Martin Luther King Jr. They both fought for something, something important. Luther fought for the Gospel. Martin Luther King Jr., you could say, for the implications of the Gospel. But you need to see, something like the Civil Rights Movement never could have happened without the Reformation. Indeed, there are so many great things that never could have happened without the Reformation. Without the Reformation, there could not have been a Johann Sebastian Bach and the revolution of music that he ushered in. Revolution in a good way. The beautiful music he produced. Without the Reformation, there never could have been a William Wilberforce fighting to abolish the British slave trade. Without the Reformation, there never could have been a Lord Shaftesbury uh, with his emphasis on great philanthropic works. Without the Reformation, there never could have been an American Revolution or the United States of America. Martin Luther was used by God to free people from spiritual and cultural bondage. And so he transformed not only the church, but the culture. He transformed a whole civilization. He transformed family life and charity and counseling and music and so many other areas of civilization. With his doctrines of justification by faith and the priesthood of all believers, with works like his translation of the Bible into German so the common man could read it, and a host of books and essays written in the language of the people speaking directly to their hearts, in a rather irreverent and often humorous style, with his actions of standing up to the tyranny of the Pope and then the Emperor, Martin Luther truly did become a hero of the common Christian man, a champion of freedom and truth, a defender of the rights of conscience. And of course, he was all of these things because he was a proclaimer of the Gospel. This is how Eric Metaxas puts it in his biography. Luther himself said he wanted to preach to the uneducated and write for him in German. This is what Metaxas says about Luther's legacy. When one considers Luther's legacy, his encouragement of the budding democratic movements of his time, he takes on an important place. No one before him had given voice to the concerns of the working classes in the way he had. Previous figures who might have done this lived before the printing press existed. So even if someone had possessed his outsized talents as a communicator, there was simply no medium in which to express oneself and find a wide audience. Luther had an uncanny and unparalleled ear for communicating with those of other social castes. Luther almost single-handedly created the Vox Populi, or voice of the people. He was their voice and became their hero. And so adept was he at channeling their concerns that he crushed his oversized opponents through his widely printed pamphlets. No one, whether on his side or the other, no one for him or against him could compete. Luther became the people's champion and their voice. He appeared fearlessly before papal legates and indeed before the emperor himself. But you need to understand, Luther's great power, the great impact Luther had in his ministry was not really due to his rhetoric 
or even to his courage. It was really due to the grace of God. The grace of God he rediscovered in his own life and then proclaimed to others. Martin Luther really did change the world. You can make a very convincing case that he is the most important figure of the last 500 years. Indeed, you can make a compelling case he is the most important figure of the last 1,000 years or even last 1,500 years. Now, Martin Luther was far from perfect, uh, and I don't think that he would want us to minimize his sins. Indeed, with Luther, you might say that his flaws were rather glaring, but very, very few historical figures have had such a huge impact on the world. He started a movement that transformed a whole civilization and it reverberates down to our day. And yet, the Reformation almost didn't happen. And indeed, the way that it happened was certainly not Luther's intention or design. We date the Reformation from October 31st, 1517, because that's when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in his small town of Wittenberg, Germany. Luther was a monk and a university professor there. The church door was sort of like the community bulletin board, just the place for this kind of thing. And the 95 theses he nailed there were proposals Luther wanted to debate concerning repentance and faith and the buying and selling of indulgences. Luther wanted a debate with his fellow academics. The theses were not some kind of protest against Rome or against the Pope. In fact, at the time, Luther thought he was doing the Pope a favor. He thought he was acting as a loyal son of the church. He expected that once the Pope heard what he had to say, the Pope would agree with his criticisms of the way indulgences were being peddled. If Luther's actions of penning up the theses was rebellious, it was only rebellious against his local prince, Frederick the Wise, because Frederick had an extensive relic collection and the money uh, that the relics brought in was hugely significant for uh, for Frederick's rule. Uh, people could come and view the relics and pay some money, and yes, they would receive an indulgence that would shorten one's time in purgatory. Indeed, it was estimated that with, with Frederick's 19,000 plus relics, if viewed on the proper day with the proper payment, they could cut off 1,900,202 days off of your time in purgatory. But as it turned out, Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the door of the castle church was really a non-event because nobody showed up to debate Luther over the 95 Theses. Nobody showed up to debate him. None of his students even showed up to, to witness a debate. In fact, a couple weeks earlier, Luther had posted 97 Theses on that same door of the castle church and they had been ignored as well. So Luther was not getting very much traction. It seemed the whole thing might have fizzled out right there. However, two other things happened that sparked the Reformation. One is that Luther not only posted the 95 theses, he also dropped them in the mail. He sent them off to his archbishop, Albrecht, on the same day that he posted them on the church door. And he wrote what... We still have this letter, so you can read it. It's an incredibly humble letter, a very charming and disarming letter sent to the archbishop uh, calling his attention to what's happening with indulgences. And it's a really very brilliant summary 
uh, of Luther's aim in the theses. Luther says this in writing the letter. He says, evidently poor souls believe that when they have bought indulgence letters, they are then assured of their salvation. They are likewise convinced that souls escape from purgatory as soon as they have placed a contribution in the chest. And Luther says, I want you to know, this is an abuse of the system. He's pointing this out to the archbishop. He thought he was doing the archbishop a favor. What he had miscalculated or could not have known is that the Archbishop Albrecht, as well as the Pope, were profiting greatly off the selling of indulgences and they actually cared a lot more about lining their own pockets than they did stopping this corruption. Indeed, they were part of the corruption, so they were not going to be the ones to end it. In fact, when Albert got the letter from Luther, he forwarded it on to the Pope in Rome, who, of course, was not at all happy to see it. And indeed, you find that one of the great ironies of the Reformation is that while Luther was the first Protestant, he was actually far more committed to the historic Catholic faith than any of his opponents. He was the true Catholic, the one who was truly in touch with the historic Christian faith. The other thing that happened was not under Luther's control. While there was very little interest in Luther's theses in Wittenberg, some folks got hold of them, and they used the relatively newly invented printing press to publish them and send them abroad all over Europe. The theses were translated so more people could read them, and they were, they were sent out all over Europe. And when they began to be more widely read, they sparked all kinds of debate in other places that truly electified Europe. The theses took on a life of their own and thrust this unsuspecting monk from the small village of Wittenberg into the spotlight. The speed with which Luther's theses spread was simply unprecedented in the history of the world. It's hard for us to fathom it because now we have email and we can send a message all the way across the world in a matter of milliseconds. But for this kind of news, this, this kind of document to travel this rapidly was simply unheard of. But even at this point, Luther was still not digging his heels in. He was still not acting in any kind of rebellious or defiant way. In March of 1518, so about five months or so after he had written and posted the theses, he wrote a letter to a friend in which he says this. He says, my purpose was not to publish them. That is, I didn't intend for the theses to be published but first to consult a few of my neighbors about them, that thus I might either destroy them if condemned or edit them with the approbation of others. But now that they are printed and circulated far beyond my expectation, I feel anxious about what they may bring forth. Not that I am unfavorable to spreading known truth abroad, rather that's what I seek, but because this method is not best adapted to instruct the public. I have certain doubts about them myself and should have spoken differently and more distinctly had I known what was going to happen. See, Luther was not exactly comfortable with the way that the theses were being used, with the attention that they had brought him, indeed with the fact that the theses were bringing him into open conflict with the church's hierarchy. But as Luther began to engage in discussion, first with Johann Tetzel, the seller of indulgences himself, and then with Roman Catholic representatives like Eck and Cayetan, as he began to engage them in conversation, and as he was summoned to and attended various diets or assemblies in 
Heidelberg in 1518 and Augsburg in 1518 and Leipzig in 1519 and then really climactically at Worms in 1521. Luther grew increasingly bold and even defiant. He became more and more convinced that the church's leadership had lost the Gospel and he had found it. He became more and more convinced that the church had corrupted God's truth and it was his job, his calling to restore it. While Luther's circle of enemies grew, his circle of friends and followers did as well. And the more Luther engaged with Rome, the more he concluded not only did Rome not have answers to the kinds of questions he was asking, they couldn't even get the questions right. Repeatedly, Luther was put on trial and he would always ask one very simple question. He would say, because popes and councils have contradicted themselves, show me from Scripture where I have erred and I will recant. Show me from Scripture and I will join you in burning my books. But Luther's inquisitors would never do so. Instead of bothering to give Luther an argument from Scripture, they would simply appeal to authority, to the power of the Pope. And for Luther, that just wasn't good enough. Every doctrine had to be demonstrated from Scripture. And so Luther stood his ground, even when it meant putting his neck on the line, putting himself out there, where yes, he was in great danger, because you know what they did with heretics in that day. They would typically burn them at the stake. So for example, at Leipzig, Luther said this. He said, neither the church nor the pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from Scripture. For Luther was always all about the Bible. For Luther, the Bible was the living Word of God. He said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. For Luther, it was all about the Bible. The Bible as the very Word of God in written form. But by contrast, Luther would be told things like this. This comes from Sylvester Prierius, who writes in response to Luther's 95 Theses, he who does not accept the doctrine of the church of Rome and the Pope of Rome as an infallible rule of faith from which even the Scriptures draw their strength and authority is a heretic. And Luther said, no, that is not the traditional, historic, Catholic, Christian faith. It's got to come from Scripture. Scripture's always the standard and the judge and the test. And it seems the more pressure Luther was under, the clearer his thinking and writing about the Gospel became. And the clearer his writing and his preaching became, the more the ranks of his followers swelled. This is how Eric Metaxas puts it. He says, one thing we see is that by 1520, Luther had accepted the idea of an irreparable breach with Rome. There was only the very slimmest of possibilities that Rome would do the right thing. But Luther was sure that he had done the right thing and would not gainsay it now in the slightest. He more than ever felt confidence that God was with him, that the truth was unassailable, and that not to defend it would be genuine heresy of a kind the Pope and his minions could not fathom. It would be to sin against God. So Luther became increasingly bold. Luther argued that no man was above the truth of God's Word. That even a lowly monk had the right to demand of his superiors that they behave in accordance with the truth and law of God. Luther's theology had dragged a startling egalitarianism out of the Gospels and into the center of history, and history and the world would never be the same. 
It was said that a wild boar had been turned loose in the Pope's vineyard. The Pope and his cardinals would refer to Luther as that little drunken German monk and did all they could to suppress him and his teachings. Now, Frederick, the man who had the relics, (laughs) became Luther's protector. And because of Frederick, Luther was kept alive. The Pope wanted Luther to come to Rome for a trial. Frederick said, no, he's a German. He'll be tried in Germany. And because of that, Frederick was able continually to protect Luther. And of course, as Luther was protected, he was able to write and teach more and more, and his teachings continue to spread. He was considered public enemy number one by the Pope and the Emperor. But to the people of Germany and increasingly to other parts of Europe, he was a hero. Again, listen to Metaxas again. When before now in Germany or anywhere had there been a champion of the people, someone who seemed to speak for them against the mighty, resplendent, fearsome, and oppressive powers arrayed against them? Martin Luther was to this extent very much a new phenomenon in history. The hero of the people had been born, and so in their way had the people themselves. They now strode onto the world stage for the first time, led by the monk from Wittenberg, and they would never again go into the wings. How it must have flattered the common people that this genius of great influence was speaking to them and representing their concerns before the emperor. It was simply unprecedented. Now we have to consider Luther's legacy. As I said, Luther impacted virtually every area of life. Not just the church, but all of culture, all of civilization. And so I want us to consider together A few areas where Luther can teach us, where we can learn from his legacy and indeed seek to build upon it. First, consider music. Luther was a gifted musician, and I know you're familiar with several of his hymns because we sing them. We've sung one already this morning. We'll sing more today. While the Reformation rode the tide of Luther's sermons and books, his hymns were just as important to the spread of the Gospel. Indeed, no important movement or revival or reform has ever taken place in the history of the church without music helping to make it happen. This is because music is a gift of the Spirit. Music is a form of glory. Music is how the Spirit glorifies or beautifies the spoken truth. And Luther understood this, and so he knew that singing was essential. He made music central to his reformational work. Right at the heart of his work of reformation is the reforming of the church's music. And it's interesting to note that some of the more radical reformers who who came out of the ferment of the Reformation actually wanted to do away with congregational singing altogether. They did not trust music. They were suspicious of music because after all, music stirs up feelings. And they were suspicious of these feelings, suspicious of music, so they tried to end the practice of congregational singing altogether, whereas Luther emphasized it and made it central. This is how Luther describes the importance of music. In his ministry and in his life, he says, music is a fair and lovely gift of God which has often awakened and moved me to the joy of preaching. He says, I have no use for cranks who despise music because it is a gift of God. Music drives away the devil and makes people happy. Next, after theology, I give music the highest place and the greatest honor. 
I would not exchange what little I know of music for something great. Experience proves that next to the Word of God, only music deserves to be extolled as the governess of the feelings of the human heart. We know that to the devil, to the de- we know that to the devil, music is distasteful and insufferable. But my heart bubbles up and overflows in response to music, which has often refreshed me and delivered me from dire plagues. For Luther, music was an act of spiritual warfare. Singing God's truth was a way of fighting off the devil. And he says, I was often delivered and refreshed and even prepared to preach through the music of the church. He knew that offering the sacrifice of musical praise was a key way that the saints of God would exercise their priesthood. We offer to God a sacrifice of praise through singing together. Luther himself became a great composer of hymns. His most famous hymn, we sang it this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, was written after a close friend had been martyred. See, every time a Protestant was martyred, Luther, of course, in some way felt responsible. Uh, He felt responsible. He felt like that should have been him being martyred. And so writing hymns like this one was a way of coping with his pain and his heartbreak and reminding himself of Christ's ultimate victory. So there's music, the Lutheran legacy in music. There's hospitality and mercy ministry. Luther and his wife Katie were models of hospitality. Their family life modeled hospitality. After Luther and Katie married, this ex-monk and this ex-nun lived in a home known as the Black Cloister because it had been uh, it had housed the monastery previously before the monastery was shut down. And as the Luther family took over the Black Cloister, they opened it up to boarding students who were coming to study at the university, to guests who would come and seek Luther's wisdom and want to stay with them. And so every evening, the family, and up to 30 or more live-in guests and visitors would gather for dinner. And in fact, we have a book called Martin Luther's Table Talk that was assembled by his students with notes that they scribbled down from those dinnertime conversations with Luther. For Luther, hospitality, our hospitality, is simply the overflow or the response to God's hospitable welcome of us to His table. God feeds us at His table. He does table talk with us. And so we ought to go and do our own table talk and feed others at our table. And so for Luther, love for one another is indeed the most tangible way we can show love for Christ because Christ lives in your neighbor. Your fellow Christian is a representative of Christ, a Christ-bearer. How you treat your fellow Christian is how you treat Christ Himself. Listen how Luther describes how we should care for our fellow Christian when we find one in need. He says, just as our neighbor is in need and lacks that in which we abound, so we were in need before God and lacked His mercy. Hence, as our Heavenly Father has in Christ freely come to our aid, we also ought freely to help our neighbor. And each one should become, as it were, a Christ to the other, that we may be Christ's to one another, and Christ may be the same in all, that is, that we may be truly Christians. In another place, Martin Luther wrote this. He said, we live above ourselves in Christ by faith, and beneath ourselves in our neighbor by love. Faith reaches up to lay hold of Christ 
And love stoops down to serve neighbor. And for Luther, that's the whole Christian life. Faith towards Christ by which we ascend and love towards neighbor by which we descend. Thesis 45 of the 95 Theses said this. And here again, you see his concern for the poor. He said, Christians are to be taught that he who sees a needy man and passes him by saving his money for indulgences does not buy papal indulgences, but God's wrath. So you see where he puts indulgences in the scheme of things compared to helping the poor. In times of the plague, when most of the people would leave the city, indeed there were times where the whole university of Wittenberg would just pick up and move to another city because the plague was sweeping through the town, Luther always insisted that his family stay so they could minister to the sick. And obviously this put them at great risk. There was an episode where actually one of Luther's own children got very, very sick because they had stayed behind. This is how Metaxas describes it. There's no question that Luther's faith is on display here because he knew that remaining behind put him in physical danger. But he felt responsibility to risk his life and even the lives of his family by remaining where he was and caring for the sick. God had called him and he would answer God's call, the only thing he feared was not doing this. So Luther was a model of hospitality and of mercy. Luther also contributed to what we would today call counseling. Luther had ongoing bouts with depression throughout much of his adult life. Some of his emotional anguish after the Reformation was underway, was certainly due to the fact that he lived with a constant expectation that he would be a martyr. He lived in constant expectation of his own death. He daily expected to die. And of course, that does take its toll. He thought he would be the first Protestant martyr and was indeed shocked when he wasn't. There can be little doubt that if Luther were alive today, he would have been diagnosed with some kind of mental illness, depression, or perhaps some kind of anxiety disorder. Before his Reformation breakthrough where he came to discover the grace of God, he would continually chase his own tail with questions about his worthiness. How could he ever become worthy of God's salvation? After his Reformation breakthrough, he still was tortured with the question, am I right? How can I be the only one who understands these things? That was the question they were continually asking him. Do you alone understand the truth? And so he lived with a great deal of stress. And he often had to do battle with his own thoughts, with unwanted thoughts. Luther believed his struggles were actually necessary to his theological understanding. And through his struggles, God opened his eyes to new insights. He indeed says of a theologian, he says this. He says it's not understanding or reading or speculation that makes the theologian but living and dying and being damned. In other words, he's saying theology is not worked out in an ivory tower. Theology is worked out in the fires of life, in the crucibles of trials and struggles and anguish, even doubt and depression and anxiety. He says this is what makes a theologian. He says the papacy has caused me so much suffering. They've made a true doctor out of me. Now, if Luther were around today, I have no doubt that he would benefit from uh, perhaps medicines or other modern therapies that we use for people in such conditions. 
And I don't mean with what I'm about to say to dismiss modern forms of therapy at all. Who knows? Luther may have had some kind of brain chemistry issue that could have been helped, or there may be various uh, technological therapies that we have today, medical treatments that would have helped him in his great struggle with depression and, and anxiety. But for Luther, the battle with depression and anxiety was primarily a spiritual battle with Satan and with demonic forces. And so he used the weapon of the Gospel. He used spiritual weapons to fight against it. Here's one example. Martin Luther relays a dream he had. And in his dream, he is attacked by Satan. And the devil unrolls a long scroll containing a list of all of Luther's sins and holds it up before him. And upon reaching the end of the scroll, Luther asked the devil, is that all? No, came the reply. And still a second scroll was thrust in front of him. Then after a second came a third, but then the devil had no more. And Luther says, devil, you have forgotten something. Quickly write over each one of those sins. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all. He struggled. He fought this battle with guilt, with anxiety, with stress, and with depression. And he fought back with the Gospel. He fought back with prayer as well. Not only his own prayers, but the prayers of his friends. He writes a letter at one point to his good friend Melanchthon. He says, for more than a whole week, I have been tossed to and fro in death and in hell so that I am still drained of all strength in my body and am trembling in all my limbs. I have lost Christ completely and have been shaken by the floods and storms of despair and blasphemy. However, as moved by the prayers of the saints, God has begun to have mercy on me and to snatch my soul from deepest hell. He says in the last week, I have experienced hell on earth. Blasphemous thoughts even. But he says God has begun to deliver me because my friends are praying for me. He says Satan lets loose all his forces. He says thus far we have resisted him by prayer. Uh, on another occasion, he writes to Melanchthon and he says, I've been, he basically says, I've been very depressed and lazy for the last week. He says, I'm sure it's because you have ceased praying for me. So start praying for me again. See, the truth is, Luther saw prayer as the key to emotional and spiritual health. Luther was a great man of prayer all throughout his life. Uh, one of my favorite stories about Luther and prayer, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail here, but uh, one time his barber asked him, how do I pray? How are we to pray? And so Luther wrote a book for his barber in response to that question entitled, A Simple Way to Pray. You can, you can actually download it off the internet. It's full of great advice about prayer. Luther says, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. It is laying hold of God's willingness. Luther says, we don't pray to cajole and provoke a reluctant God into giving us good things. He says, no, prayer is approaching a, a gracious and generous Heavenly Father who, as Jeremiah 32 says, delights to do us good and He never stops doing us good. And so prayer, Luther says, is laying hold of God's promises. Prayer is how we unlock God's treasure chest. The good things God wants to give us flow to us through prayer. Luther's famous for that saying, I have so much to do today, I must spend the first three hours in prayer. And that's truly how he lived his life 
and fought his battles. In prayer, he worked through his struggles. Luther also had interesting advice for others who struggled with depression and anxiety. There's there's several examples of this, uh, but listen to one letter that he sends to a young man who is in despair over the condition of his soul. young Christian man who writes to Luther for help. And this is what Luther writes back. This is his pastoral advice to the young man struggling with depression. He says, I should like to encourage you who are a young man always to be joyful and to engage in riding and hunting and to seek the company of others who may be able to rejoice with you in a godly and honorable way. For solitude and inwardness are poisonous and deadly to all people and especially to a young man. Accordingly, God has commanded us to be joyful in His presence. He does not desire a gloomy sacrifice. Luther goes on speaking from his own experience. He says, no one realizes how much harm it does a young person to avoid pleasure and to cultivate solitude and sadness. He says, your grace has many friends near at hand. Be merry with them for gladness and good cheer when decent and proper are the best medicine for a young person, indeed for all people. He says, I myself have spent a good part of my life in sorrow and gloom. Now I seek to find pleasure wherever I can. Praise God, we now have sufficient understanding of the Word of God to be able to rejoice with a good conscience and to use God's gifts with thanksgiving for He created them for this purpose and is pleased when we so use them. Again, again, you can find in Luther's letters, he's counseling young men just this way. I think Luther would say to most, you're actually not having enough fun. You're not having enough joy. God wants you to enjoy His gifts. Find the joy, find the pleasure God has for you. Finally, what is Luther's legacy? Luther's legacy is the recovery of the Gospel. So much that was revolutionary in Luther's day, we now take for granted precisely because of Luther. For us to talk about the free forgiveness of sins, that's not so radical because we live with that and experience that every day. But for Luther, in Luther's day, it was unheard of. The free and gracious forgiveness of sin. For Luther, the Gospel was everything. Luther was so concerned to preach and teach the Gospel, he wanted to drive the Gospel home time and time again. And so Luther preached several several thousand sermons over the course of his life. He would not cease preaching because he said to do so would simply allow people to hurl themselves into the jaws of hell. That's what happens when the Gospel is no longer preached. People cast themselves into the jaws of hell. Luther wrote a small and large catechism to teach the Gospel. These are brilliant works, especially his small catechism is truly one of my favorites. And I would especially commend it to you. It's perhaps the first catechism in the history of the church written by a father for His children. And for that reason, it's very simple and it's very fatherly. It's very pastoral. It's His way of teaching the Gospel to His kids. For Luther, the Gospel was a matter of life and death. The Gospel was worth dying for. He said we need to hear the Gospel every day because we forget it every day. And he said the good news of the Gospel is that it brings with it assurance of forgiveness. It was actually heretical in medieval theology. It was actually heretical to say you had assurance of salvation. But Luther's whole theology, his whole recovery of the Gospel was about having assurance of salvation. One time his good friend Melanchthon wrote him a letter. 
Uh, Melanchthon was a much more timid soul than Luther was, and he was very introspective. He wrote to Luther in his letter, he says, I woke this morning wondering if I trust Christ enough. Melanchthon was sort of the classic navel gazer, continually wondering, have I trusted enough? Have I done enough? He's always wondering about the state of his faith. Well, finally, to pull, pull out all the stops, Luther wrote back these words to Melanchthon, to pull Melanchthon out of himself. Luther writes, Melanchthon, go sin bravely. Then go to the cross and bravely confess it. The whole Gospel is outside of us. Now Luther's words have been abused down through the centuries. Go sin boldly. Those words have been taken out of their context and used to promote a kind of lawlessness. That was not Luther's intention. Luther's saying, you're a sinner and you're going to sin anyway. Know that God forgives you. Seek to do what's right, but know you're going to fail and God's grace covers your failures. This was Luther's continual message. But Luther also knew that preaching the Gospel was not just a private concern that would help people in their private lives. He knew that it would reform all of society. That as he preached the Gospel, uh, the whole of civilization would certainly be transformed. He knew that preaching the Gospel would turn the world upside down. He said the Gospel cannot be preached without causing offense and tumult. And of course, for Luther, the content of the Gospel is the righteousness of God revealed in Christ Jesus. It's Romans 1, 16 and 17. God has been faithful to His people to fulfill His promises in Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus, He makes us righteous. He declares us righteous in the righteousness of His Son. Luther said, the Christ who is grasped by faith lives in the heart and is the true righteousness on account of which God counts us as righteous. He said faith unites the soul to Christ as a spouse to her husband. He continually used this analogy of a marriage to say this is what we have with Christ. We've been united to Christ by faith. We're incorporated into Christ by faith. So what is true of Him is now true of us. And he says this faith that unites us to Christ, this faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace so sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. That's Luther's assurance, his certainty, his confidence in the Gospel. It was the Gospel that sustained and gave Luther his courage in times of trial, in times of suffering. you got to remember, from 1521 until his death in 1546, Luther lived under the ban of the empire. The emperor himself had said in 1521, I have decided to mobilize everything against Luther. My kingdoms and dominions, my friends, my body, my blood, and my soul. The, the emperor says, everything I've got, I'm taking the fight against Luther. He could be legally killed at any moment. And of course, he endured all kinds of, of slander, relentless cruelties, all kinds of threats hanging over him. Only the assurance that God had truly forgiven his sins and accepted him could sustain him. And of course, too, it was the Gospel that prepared Luther for his death. I talked about Luther's struggles, his depression, his anxiety, but Luther was also very funny, very humorous. And he would often laugh and joke in the face of death. Once after a bout with a serious 
illness on a trip while he was away from home. He said, if I do get back to Wittenberg, I will lie down in a coffin and give the maggots a fat doctor to eat. Okay, Luther said that kind of thing commonly. On another occasion, he wrote this, taunting death, showing his confidence in the face of death. He said, dear death, dear sin, how is it that you are alive and terrify me? Do you not know you have been overcome? Do you, death, not know that you are quite dead? Do you not know the One who says of you, I have overcome the world? But there was a time for Luther to leave this world. Uh, a time for Luther, Luther to face, face death. Uh, he was on a trip actually away from Wittenberg back to his hometown where he had been born and baptized in Erfurt. And while in Erfurt, he took ill. And it was obvious, quite obvious, he was not going to recover this time. And so at his deathbed, surrounded by some of his friends and family members, uh, he began to recite Psalm 31, particularly this verse, Into your hands I commit my spirit, for you have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And then the very last words we have from Martin Luther are these, We are beggars, it is true. We are beggars, it is true. We are in need of God's grace utterly dependent upon the grace of God for everything. But Luther's confidence was that God in His grace had made provision so that these beggars now have riches beyond all measure and all imagination. And as Luther passed from this world into the next, he certainly knew God's peace. At his funeral, Melanchthon gave the eulogy. He said, the charioteer of Israel has fallen. Melanchthon said, quote, throughout eternity, Pious souls will magnify the benefits which God bestowed on the church through Martin Luther. Indeed, it is true. Today we give thanks to God for this man, for his life, for his legacy, for the benefits God has bestowed upon us through him. Let us pray together and give thanks. Father, we do give you thanks and praise for your faithfulness to your church. Father, we thank you for the Gospel, for the gracious good news of salvation that You bring to us through the death and resurrection of Christ. Luther himself said, this is the Gospel in a nutshell, that Christ is Lord, that Christ is King, that Christ reigns over all. He is mighty to save, mighty to deliver, mighty to forgive, mighty to reign over all for our good. This is our hope. We pin all our hopes on Christ Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior of saviors. This we pray in His name. Amen.